Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman coming to you here from ABWE International in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, joined as always by my esteemed boss and co-host, Scott W. Dunford, uh, who is fresh off an exhausting weekend of preaching from Ephesians 1 at his local church. Uh, since he's a faithful churchman. And how was that? How did that go? Uh, I'm excited about it. It actually was Ephesians 2 and had a chance to kind of explore. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but, yeah, I guess in Paul's letter, he didn't break it up. By, <laughs> right. Um, but um, but it had a chance to, 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 to talk about work and um, the difference between God's work and our work. And, and so, yeah, it was fun. But I, I'm kind of feeling the preacher blues this morning. So. Yeah, those are those are heavy. Uh, anyone in the audience that's felt those probably knows. But we are not alone today. We are joined um, by Steve Shermer, who is coming to us from. I, I don't want to say the the name of the town wrong, just because I know that we're, we were debating whether or not it's a suburb of a larger town. So why don't you say where you're from, or at least where you're at right now? <laughs> yeah. So currently, I'm in Spartanburg, South Carolina. There you go. And it is its own town. Let the record show, right? <laughs> yeah, so we're about an hour. We're about an hour from Charlotte. Okay. Okay. May or may not be a suburb of Charlotte. Depends. But but I can remember the first time I Definitely met. Definitely not. I met Steve. I don't know if you remember the first time we met, um, but I can remember specifically where we first met. It was outside the gate of um, uh, an apartment complex in Xi'an, China. And um, we looked at each other and kind of had a knowing understanding that both of us were there for a specific reason, I believe. <laughs> and um, two, it, <laughs> two white American guys in, uh, in Asia. And, and, yeah. and a friendship developed that I'm really, really grateful for. And uh, so Steve, we'd love for you to just talk to us, tell us a little bit about your family, uh, first of all, and uh, then the ministry that God's called you to. You know, I don't, I don't remember that moment where we met, but I do remember us eating a Subway. <laughs> I don't, I don't. That's always memorable. I, I, I remember guess. that, so but I, I try to forget Subway, but uh, everything <laughs> else about China, I, I love to remember. All right. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I've been, I've been involved in Asia for 18 years. I now, for the last uh, about five years, I've got I get the privilege of leading Silk Road Catalyst, and of course, um, prior to that, I was living in Asia, which is where I met Scott. And um, I don't know my my wife is Puerto Rican. She was living in Paris when we met in London. <laughs> uh, I'm a I am a diehard Texan. I am not from South Carolina, but I am a diehard Texan. I do love where I live now. And, uh, we actually ended up here as a result of some people we met in Asia. So, um, that's the only reason I even knew where this place was, but we do, um, ministry wise, we work in a couple of countries in Asia. We focus on uh, disciple making movement methodology. And, um, I'm excited to be here to talk about China. You know, one of the things that stood out to me from the first time we've met is is your passion for discipleship, um, and 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 I think that I would probably still be the case just knowing you, Steve. Uh, what is it that spurred in you a heart for discipleship, and especially as it relates to um, to the peoples of Asia? Well, it, it really started when I became a new believer in 1995. I was introduced to the college pastor of our church uh, just outside of Dallas. And he took me under his wing for several years and just poured into me. And it was those three years of 
uh, being invested into by Jared that uh, just really helped me see the importance of not just, you know, I'm, I'm very big on evangelism and, and all that, but the Bible doesn't say go and just um, evangelize people. It says to go and make disciples. And so I really just uh, saw that Jared was pouring into me the holistic approach of disciple making. And, and that is really what started it for me. And that's, that's what got me going. So, yeah, and I appreciate that. And I appreciate that about your ministry. And that'd be our heartbeat as well, that we see people not just, um, make a profession of faith, but become followers of Jesus Christ, um, and obeying his teaching and, and spreading that to others. And that is the heart. Um, what I want to focus on today and what we've talked about and the reason we had you on here is is to really kind of do a country-specific focus, um, a country that's uh, restricted access, meaning that it does not allow um, missionaries, um, it doesn't give out missionary visas and allow people to do um, missionary work, um, but it is the largest country in the world, um, 1.3 billion people. Um, I believe that number is kind of uh, kind of stabilizing, but that's the country of China. And so, Steve, let's just talk for a little bit about what 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 has God been doing in China in the past? Um, what is the state of the church in China from your perspective? Um, then we'll move into a couple other topics, some of the challenges of ministry there, and then what, what God's doing now. But what has God been doing um, over the last couple hundred years in the land of China? Well, I think for me, one of the most exciting aspects of the of China, especially modern China, uh, and when I say modern China, I'm referring to from the moment the People's Republic of China was established in 1949, was when Chairman Mao went in and 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 the Cultural Revolution and the attempt to eradicate all anything intellectual, all things religious, all things Christian, that when China finally opened up in 1979, there was an expectation that they would walk in and find nothing within the context of a church, only to discover that somewhere between half a million and a million believers were still active in China. And and then you go from that moment to 2018, and you just, you see this rapid multiplication of disciples being made, churches being planted to where now you have, I mean, I know Scott understands this. We have a, a wide range of opinions on the size of the church, but the lowest number I see being 70 million to the highest number I see to being about 120 million. And just to give some believers. context, the U.S. is what three hundred and thirty million people total. Right. So yeah, these correct. are these are astronomical figures that that are that are hard for us to grasp. Yeah. So you go from a million to maybe one hundred and twenty million in less than forty years. Hmm. And, Unbelievable. And you're it's in a country where, um, at some levels and many levels, it's definitely more in the past than maybe it has been in the last ten years high levels of oppression, persecution, pastors being jailed periodically in certain places. In the midst of all that, the church has just thrived. And you, we can't explain it to a denominational effort or methodology effort. It's, it's merely uh, the work of the Holy Spirit doing something in China, regardless of religious freedoms or lack thereof. 
He's doing the work. And I think in part to show the world, it doesn't matter what's going on around you or the atmosphere that you live in. God is going to do what he's going to do in the end. Mm. And we just need to be faithful in the process of it. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I love history. And, and so, you know, especially Chinese history, I've, I've probably read more of that than any other country besides America. Um but, you know, you see this huge movement, you know, with Robert Morrison and then um, Hudson Taylor and, and the floods of people going in there. But, but really, you know, the, the massacres that took place, not, not even just because of the communist revolution, but you have the boxers that, that were against everything Western and wiped out so many. And we hear stories of like the martyrs, like the Stams, you know, who were, who were martyred during the communist revolution. And, and really there was a – it wasn't just that – the government was hostile toward Christianity is that, that, but, but that there was an, uh, an outright attempt to, to snuff it out and to get rid of every type of, as Mao Zedong called it, superstition. And yet in the middle of that, in the middle of, you know, Christians being openly exposed and, and killed or imprisoned, the gospel didn't just, um, stay alive. It, it, it exploded. Um, it's amazing. I agree. I, I mean, just like you pointed out, just the Boxer Rebellion and all those things throughout history. It's just amazing to see that God's work was going to continue in China. And I know I'm, I'm a bit, I have an opinion about China in terms of the church and, and, and what God's doing with it and what it's what I foresee him doing in the future through it. Uh, but I just I just am fascinated by the reality that the church was never snuffed out, as you said. You know, it's it's interesting. Um, if you spend much time with with uh, Christians in China, you find that many of them have such a, a passion uh, for evangelism. Um, is that something you're seeing? Uh, and it's been several years since I've even been to China, but is that something you're still seeing? Does the church still have a fervent passion for evangelism in China? It's an interesting question. Um, on, on one level, yes, there is, um, there's definitely remains a strong element within the body of Christ in China that is very active in evangelism and disciple making. Um, at the same time, I always, I, I think I have to argue the, the other side that in the last 10, 15 years, there's been um, for a period of time, at least, a lessening of, of persecution, you could say, for lack of a better word, against the church in, in some areas. And so it has developed at the same time a, a nominal level of Christianity among some in China. Um, so you, you've got, um, I'd say it's very similar to here, but I do find that those who are very passionate about evangelism, that side of the church is very strong, very active, and and they will do it at all cost. You know, it's um, it, it's interesting. There's something that I found to be very different between um, my experience in China and experience here in the states is that there is an element in which Christianity um, has been fashionable. Uh, I can remember. Mm -hmm. 
having people coming up and, and talking to me uh, simply because they wanted to immigrate to the West and the West was Christian. So that was something that was fashionable to them. And, and, and yet at that time, at least they weren't very serious about pursuing, um, pursuing the faith or, you know, another aspect of that is, you know, Christmas, which for us is a, you know, is a very spiritual holiday. Even in America, it may not be always a spiritual holiday, but it's at least a family oriented holiday. Um, but Christmas Eve in China is, is often kind of like a, a big party scene. Right. Um, so, uh, I'm just curious, is it, is there still a, a fascination, uh, with Western things and, and does Christianity sometimes sometimes still get lumped in with, with, um, with Western thinking and Western philosophy in, in a fashionable way in China? I'd, I'd have, I'd say definitely, Christmas is still a big thing over there. Um, it's increasing. The decorations have increased. But at the same time, because it has become, as you said, it's fashionable, we're starting to, uh, I'm starting to notice that there's more, there's an intentional effort on the part of authorities to stop it. So while they can't stop people from celebrating Christmas, which I don't think they're trying to do that specifically, but you'll find universities preventing students from doing Christmas activities. You'll see um, local governments in certain places banning uh, Christmas decorations, which for a period of time became very popular. Um, and it became very ornate in, in just the way they were decorating. And um, but there's there's an effort, a growing effort to try to stop that because it has become so popular because it ties into uh, the West, specifically America and Europe. Um, and as it as they would see it, it ties into Christianity in the end. So to get rid of it all, you've got to get rid of all of these aspects, all these components, including the outward expression of, or the outward celebration of Christmas. I, I have a, you know, I've heard, you've probably heard the phrase before. Um, everything you hear about China is true somewhere in China. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I found that in my experience uh, to be very true. And in the, the places that I've seen, you have, you have some areas where the church, not just, you, you know, there's a spectrum of Christian expression. So you, I've been into some three self uh, government, sponsored churches that are very even evangelistic, very evangelical that, that believe the word of God and that teach the word of God. Um, but then you go to others that, that are, that are modernistic and, and aren't preaching the gospel at all. Um, and then the same thing could be true with, with the house church movement. You have some that seem to be very, very solid and, and, and deep in their teaching others that are less so, but also it seems like the, the levels of persecution vary. Um, and that, you know, we've, we've even seen just recently on the news, you know, huge house churches that have their own buildings now that are being torn down by the government. Um, but but some have experienced a lot of persecution. Some are experiencing less persecution. Can you just kind of from your from what you're seeing and hearing, um, what is the level of 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 persecution going on within the church um, is what we're seeing on the news with church church buildings being torn down. Is that typical? Um, is that something that's just happening regionally? I'm just curious your perspective on that. Well, I, I, I want to highlight the very first thing you said in that, in your question was uh, everything you hear about China is true somewhere. 
And I, I would I would say one of my missionary pet peeves is reading articles, especially here in the West, from uh, Christian organizations that uh, highlight a certain aspect of what's happening in a place like China. And then the way it's worded makes it sound like this is the this is what's happening everywhere in China. And it, it great it, it makes for great marketing, but unfortunately it, it creates a false reality. So there are churches as, as we've seen in the past where their crosses were torn down. Uh, we've seen some of us, I know I have videos of a mega church being demolished recently. There's um, a report in Eastern China of dozens of pastors being arrested. Uh, there's reports of uh, Western or foreign workers, not just Western, uh, being kicked out. Um, but all that is true to some extent, um, but it's not true everywhere. I know places where uh, that stuff is happening right now. And then I know other places where nothing has changed in the last 15 years. And what I mean by that is they're not seeing any level of persecution. Uh, they're not seeing the, the police crack down on house churches. Um, and so you really have to uh, look at China, not from a, a macro level, but from a micro level. You have to really dig deep into what's happening on the local level, the provincial levels, the city levels um, to to figure out what's really happening. At the same time, there is a new law that went into effect recently. Uh, it has increased the, the penalty for unsanctioned religious activities. If you're caught, it's increased um and, uh, jail time for pastors. And so uh, there are places where that's being implemented more than others. Um, places I know of, of stuff going on, that stuff technically hasn't been implemented just yet. But then I have friends in the far West where they're seeing it played out right in front of their eyes. Yeah. I mean, I, I know I've heard of, of stories of in some, some parts of China, 25 or 30, um, foreign workers at a time being not being thrown in jail, but having their visas revoked and, um, and certainly, uh, Christians, national Christians being put in prison or sent out for reeducation. And those are things that we hadn't really heard of happening as frequently, um, in, in maybe 15 or 20 years. And yet, um, it seems to be a renewed emphasis or a renewed, renewed emphasis on the government to kind of, um, stamp out Christianity, at least in some parts of, of China. I agree. And, and the most one of the biggest headlines recently is um, I've seen it a lot in Western papers, but also among some uh, missional context uh, that they're banning Bibles. Um, and in that you have to read the headline. You have to really focus on what it's really saying. So um, Joanne Pittman with China Source wrote an article about it today and posted it on their website and their blog. And it, it tackles that issue that uh, the government has banned Bibles from being sold online, but the reality was it was never legal to sell them online. So there really was no ban. It was just they're, they're enforcing the law that they've already had. And so it goes back to 20 years ago. If you want a Bible, you have to go to a, a, a three self or um, a registered church to buy it rather than buying it online, which people have done as she calls it, the gray zone, uh, because for so long it's just been this gray area that 
a lot of stuff was tolerated and allowed, but it was actually never legal to do it to begin with. So that kind of is a conundrum, um, a little bit of a riddle with China in that officially on the books, they've always had religious freedom. You know, it's part of the constitution of the People's Republic of China is that there is freedom of religion. And so even though there was laws protecting religion, um, in effect, they they were uh, ignored or dealt with differently. And then today we see things have not really changed. Like, so there's an opening period in which the laws never changed, just how they were enforced was different. And now we're seeing the same thing happening again, kind of a, so, so legally nothing's really changed. It's just the emphasis is put on enforcement of some of those or the way the things are interpreted. Is that, would that be fair to say it that way? I'd say, yeah, for the most part, yes. I would say the only changes I've seen are maybe the level of uh, penalty uh, for being caught, um, having an unsanctioned religious activity, I think. Um, but yeah, as you said, all these have been laws to begin with. Everything the house church does in China is technically illegal. Hmm. Uh, there, there's nothing legal about their activities, even though there is a, uh, a pseudo religious freedom within their constitution. Um, but it's just, you know, as, as Scott said earlier, or um, insinuated, you, you really start, there's, there's laws at the top and then at the provincial level, it's, it's enforced and then it's put to the local level and it's enforced. So the provincial level at every province is different in how they enforce it. And the same thing within a province, every city is different in how it's enforced. It's almost like some places don't make me enforce it unless I, unless I have to. Uh, they don't want to do more paperwork than they have to. Um, but, you know, it, it really is a, um, a gray area because you just never know. And it's not just religious laws. In China, there's so many laws, you just never know what's going to be enforced. I mean, recently um, someone had posted on, on Facebook about these fake cars. They post an article, they, they, they tag them as fake cars in China. They're, they're like the... Um, I'm forgetting the name, so uh, forgive me, but it's like a three-wheeler, but they've enclosed it. They're selling it as a family car instead of a, a makeshift taxi, and and they're, um, they call them fake cars, and, and so they sell them all over the place. I actually have an American friend who owns one for his family, but the other day he got a phone call from another friend saying, okay, the police are enforcing the law against these cars for today, so just be careful. And, you know, the day comes and goes and then he's back on the street again and no problems. And so you don't know when they're going to step up and do something and you don't know when they're just going to let it let it just pass by. So that goes with enforcing religious laws as as well as non-religious. I think that's just helpful for our listeners to hear because it is easy to sit here in the West and just take all of the headlines at face value and assume that the government is this. Whether it's of China or of any other creative access or restricted access country, it's just this ubiquitous, um, you know, homogenous thing where if there's a law, it's automatically being forced everywhere all the time. And we forget how much um, virtue signaling is happening on the part of these governments to, to make certain statements that they you know, either are or aren't going to be tolerant to the people that live within their borders. Uh, it's just helpful to remember that it's not all black and white. And, you know, because I especially think of how many conversations that I've had in the, in the context of mobilization 
with people that are nervous about going to a uh, restricted access field. And that's not to say that there's no risk. There's definite risk. But um, in conversations that some of these people will have with uh, parents or family members who are hesitant about them going to some of these difficult places, um, there's just so many stereotypes that get perpetuated and um, especially in the church where, where every now and then we hear stories of persecution, it's just helpful to realize that, um, you know, there is that happening, but there's other places where it's um, just not quite as clear cut and just having a realistic, balanced portrait of all these countries. But I, I wanted to ask you a question, too, that's a little bit on a different note, which is, um, you know, I, I don't have the same experience, you know, being in different parts of Asia that you guys have. But um, uh, not that long ago, uh, I, I was helping write a piece for our magazine, and we were talking about a ministry that's happening in East Asia. And one of the interesting points of research that, Scott, you helped me draw out in that is just the, the problem that um, cults and other uh, heterodox movements mm, yeah. are in China um, and, and some of the history there, too. So <laughs> Not even cults, just straight up mainstream Christianity sometimes. Yeah. Well, uh, so talk to us problems. about that. I mean, you know, we, we have our own problems in America with not only, you know, cults that are obviously cults like, uh, uh, you know, the Church of Latter-day Saints or, or the Jehovah's Witnesses and Watchtower Society, but but um, it, we have our own prosperity preachers. We have our own problems, but the, the problem is a lot more different um, in, in China where, where you're dealing with state churches that, that have to be approved in this, this underground movement uh, separate from that. So, so share a little bit with us what that looks like. Man, you really, you really created a question, didn't you? I try. Um, I try. You know, that's why they pay me the big bucks for this. That's like a whole podcast, podcast. by itself, I think. <laughs> Isn't it? I, maybe um, we're setting you up for a second interview. <laughs> you have 30 <laughs> seconds. To, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. So as you were saying that, I, I mean, there, there's the, the Falun Gong. There's, um, I don't know why I'm going, drawing a blank on some of these Eastern lightning, uh, which are Eastern lightning is actually very. It sounds like an energy drink. Yeah. Believe me, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, you know, Eastern lightning is a very dangerous cult, uh, especially toward the house church. They're known for kidnapping and, and demanding ransom mm. uh, from house churches. Uh, you have uh, Falun Gong, which isn't necessarily so dangerous against the church, uh, but they're very, um, they're just, it's just strange in my opinion. I mean, you see them in the States, this, uh, Shen Yuen show that's going around the U S we even have them here in South Carolina. And, um, I, I just saw an advertisement for them in yeah. Florida. I've seen the billboards. Last week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's Falun Gong here in the States. And most people don't realize that when they, when they go to this show, what they're, what they're, um, watching and I had a friend that went to it and he was aware of it, but didn't realize the connection. And, and he walked out and just started telling me just, just how, uh, it was just full of propaganda. Um, but of course it all originates from China. Then you, then you have sex within the, the house church specifically that are problematic. And as you were asking the question, one, one specific scenario came to mind, which is uh, sad, but at the same time, humorous, because I, I feel like it came from the States, is there was a, uh, house, a house church. It was a small network, thank goodness. But there was a group about um, an hour from some friends of mine. 
And basically what they had created was a house church pyramid scheme. And so uh, the, the original founder would, um, it's taken the, the church planning movement, disciple making movement methodology, planning a church, let's say 10 people in there, those 10 go out, plant their own church. Well, he, the scheme was he gets 10% of the tithe that comes into the first church as they go out and plant, they, the new church planters get 10% of the ties that come into their churches oh, and then a portion goodness. comes back to him. Wow. And it just cycles down creating this giant pyramid scheme. Mm. Um, and so, you, you know, you do have one of the issues in China, while there's great theological education taking place, is probably not widespread enough for pastors so you get this effect of what I what I look at with Mormonism, Islam, Buddhism, all these sects, um, Baha'i of, of some random person who's claiming to connect with God by themselves. There's no accountability to um, uh, reinforce that they're actually hearing from God or not hearing. And then they create this religious belief that they were able to sell to enough people that it became so widespread, they became major religions. That, that was some of the history that Scott had related, you know, in, in previous conversations that we've had. Um, you know, you have um, the movement in, I guess it was the, the mid-1800s. Yeah, the Taiping Rebellion is a big it, It's easy to criticize the Chinese government um, but there's they, memory of this. But they yeah. don't understand necessarily Christianity and the different expressions of Christianity. And then there's history of of cults taking taking over and especially creating an instability. And from what I understand of Chinese thinking, you know, like a bad government is better than no government, and mm-hmm. uh, an instability is about the worst possible thing. And you have the you have the Taiping Rebellion, where you've got a a, a, a man receiving a gospel tract, misunderstanding um, the gospel tract, and 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 manipulating. And I think you know, obviously, this diabolical. Um, starting a movement that that leads millions of people um, in to, to death to and causes deaths. a huge, huge and, and then not just that, but then there's also the memory of colonization. Um, one of Mao's you know big statements was you know he at the at, you know the establishment of the People's Republic of China was that China has stood up, and what he's saying by stood up, he didn't just mean against emperors, but he also meant against foreign. Invaders and foreign philosophies, um, and so his idea of standing up is saying, um, you know, we're we're casting off these outside influences because Christianity, um, with well intentions, you know, did sometimes come in. Um, there's, there's stories of missionaries coming in on the opium boats as England is fighting a war to open up China for their opium drug trade, and missionaries riding on those boats spreading the gospel while the British government is forcing opium onto the masses to keep China weak. Mm-hmm. So the, you have these horrible stories yeah. that, um, you know, the church, sometimes we can be our own worst enemy. And so we have to be sensitive to the fact that there have been wrongs, there have been excesses, and some of those are still imprinted, I think, on on certainly the government's mind. Well, and it's, I mean, when you talk about the cults specifically too, I mean, imagine being, um, you know, in the government of the state of Utah and the only experience you've ever had with Christianity is 
fundamental LDS, fundamental Mormonism, mm, right? And then add to that the dynamic of this honor shame culture, where you are trying to save face and maintain order and stability. That's a very high cultural value there. Yeah, and um, you know you. You don't want to um, give too much credit, but it, it is easy to see, um, you know, how there can be a lot of misconceptions about what Christianity is. Yeah, I agree. And I, you know, and what I think Scott was saying and just about the opium missionaries coming in on the opium. China has uh, they tend to have a, a long memory and slow forgiveness. Uh, you see it in their relationship with Korea and Japan. Uh, you see it in the way uh, even young people today who weren't even alive during those times of uh, Japanese occupation and um, the Korean War and um, or even the, the Western missionaries coming in through opium and military ships. Uh, they 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 remember that they're in, they're taught these things. And so they 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 have this long memory they have a, a slow level of forgiveness. And so they hold on to it, which does affect, because I think Scott made a good point that is, we can't just blame the government for everything. Uh, yeah. we, have, we have to realize that there is a history they're looking at that helped shape and influence their philosophy today and how they approach things. I want to shift gears because so far this has maybe been discouraging. <laughs> um, <laughs> True. Uh, and, and I know you're involved in a lot of exciting things. And I know from talking to other friends uh, who, who are serving um, in Asia that there are a lot of exciting things happening. What are, what are some of the things that you're seeing happen that excite you and give you um, gospel hope? Well, as I said earlier in the broadcast, you know, when I was talking about how just how the, ch the church grew in China and just how quickly it grew. Uh, one thing that has come out of uh, this massive church that has developed is a missions movement, a Chinese missions movement. Some people refer to it as back to Jerusalem. There's other there's another movement called Mission China 2030, which is similar in nature. But it's it is a, a movement of the Chinese church to send missionaries to engage both internally among unreached people groups, uh, like the, uh, the Uyghur and the Hui and, and the Tibetans and other uh, groups like that across China. But they're also sending and, and seeking to send thousands of Chinese missionaries across um, the Silk Road or 1040 window um, to, to get the gospel to all these places. There's, I was in a conference last year that had 1,200 uh, young Chinese believers coming to learn about missions, to learn how they can be involved, what, is, what the needs are, uh, what you know, educational things that they need to pursue, how they can apply their secular vocations, all kinds of things. Uh, spending a whole week learning about this. This was their third or fourth event like this. Um, and so you, you've got uh, this amazing missions movement. At the same time, there's, there's still a need. I mean, even in the midst of all the talk we, we, we discussed of the challenges that are taking place in China, um, there's still opportunities for people to be involved um, in church planting, in theological training, um, teaching churches how to care for families and children and, and just, you know, everything we're accustomed to that we probably take for granted here in the States. 
All these are things that the church in China know that they need. They just need help in some places to learn how to do it. And so the, the ministry opportunities in China are wide. Um, um, partnering with Chinese churches uh, is still a viable option. There's, there's tons of pastors who want to have legitimate partnerships uh, with churches in the States. And I'm not talking about a church in the States sending money. Like they want a, a true partnership, a relationship with people here in the West so they can learn, but also so we can work together. Not that we come in and dictate to them how to do things, but we can come alongside them and teach them what we've been taught. Well, and one of the things, I mean, you know, how can the American church bless the Chinese church? And in many ways, I think we need more blessing from them than they do from us in terms of their zeal and their faith and and their evangelistic fervor, things that you've already talked about. But I think you're sort of scratching it. That That is one of those things where you know, we have a just a, a plethora of theological resources, educational resources, and things that we've been blessed with uh, in the West here. You know, those are at least some very practical ways um, that we can get that into some of the hands of these people. Is that accurate? Would you say is that is that one way that the American church is actually equipped to help? Uh, yeah, I agree. Uh, definitely. I mean, I was, I think the last couple of days I read uh, numerous articles, one, some from Jackson Wu, uh, which is a, a very well-known guy in the missions world in China, uh, talking about the need for theological training and to help China uh, develop their own theological training, um, more so than what they already have that's in existence today, but really helping them reinforce what, what they need to develop themselves uh, because there is there, you know, I, I don't want to go back to discouragement, but I do believe there's a day where it's going to be less likely for us people like us to walk in. And um, but that day hasn't come yet. But in preparation for that day, we need to do what we can to help them. Um, and I want to use that word very carefully because I know it could be taken as us, the colonials coming in to save the day or something like that. And that's not what I'm trying to say, but to really come alongside them and help them develop these uh, Chinese owned developed resources, uh, seminary training, uh, discipleship training, all these things. So everything is still a big need there. I, I want to ask too, I mean, as we're talking about this and I'm, I'm sure there's some people listening that, you know, they have a real heart for, for theology and, and education and, and training people in that way. I mean, what are some of the theological issues that the Chinese church is wrestling with? What are some of the things that, that are uh, maybe points of vulnerability for them where there's disagreement or there's uh, just a lack of understanding of what scripture teaches? I mean, it, it sounds like the issue of, of prosperity and wealth might be one of them, but I, I don't know. Is that one of them? What are some of the issues? Well, Jackson Wu, uh, the guy I mentioned, wrote this article just recently, and he was talking about um, there's the the division between churches. You know, we become so so we white knuckle our theology to where if you don't agree with me 100 percent, then I then I banish you. Right. So to speak, you're not part of us. Uh, but what he was mentioning in his article was the need that there needs to be a level of contextualization of, of everything, nearly, not just theological training, but church planning and everything. It needs to have Chinese, biblically based with Chinese characteristics to it, so to speak. 
And those things need to be developed because what he has seen over the years is, and what I've experienced myself is they, they love America. I, I've, many Chinese love the West and particularly America. And so they mimic what they see in America. Every, I've had so many conversations just in the last year with pastors and, and, and I walk away thinking they got that from America. This is for, I mean, it's either America, Singapore, UK, something, but it's just a matter of, it's oftentimes taken from these places and just mimicked in the same fashion when in reality they needed to contextualize it to their culture. I had a buddy in college who, who was Chinese who, when he came over the day that he showed up at our dorm room was his first day in the States. He didn't speak a word of English. I could only communicate with him through Google Translator. Um, I mean, it was, it was pretty crazy. It was literally just put on an airplane and dropped off at a Christian university. Uh, and lo and behold, he still knew more about the NBA than I did in that very moment. <laughs> he really did. So you're right. Yeah, there's a fascination with American culture. Yeah. So, you know, I think a lot of this, we just need to, um, they need to contextualize it. That's probably the biggest problem. Uh, that way they can own it and they can, it can better translate when they communicate it, it'll better translate to the people within their churches, which I think will ultimately just make them stronger in the future. You know, I know that there's been a lot of emphasis. Um, we have partners that we work with that have put a lot of emphasis into putting training uh, into the hands of of leaders, and I know one uh, particular friend has put a lot of that. He's 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 a gr- he, his Chinese is is superior. He's worked a lot on it, and in learning the language, he's learned the culture. And for those of us who've lived there or visited there often, you find that the deeper you go, the more you realize how differently we think. It isn't just like, hey, I speak one language and you speak another language, but our th- thought processes are the same. No, in, in in my experience, at least, virtually every way that I think is different than the way my Chinese uh, friends um, think by default. And so you, you, you add into that those spiritual um, elements to it and, and our spiritual practices and the need for, for a Chinese believer to understand the word of God and apply it to their own unique uh, uh, situation is, is critical. You know, when I, when I was in language school, my first language teacher told me, you can learn to speak the language and speak it perfectly. But if you don't speak it through the eyes of the culture, then you're not speaking the language. And so culture is, is imperative to be integrated into everything we're doing as best as we can. And that's why we need this ministry, all these various ministry components with Chinese characteristics in them. And, and, and I think we'd be remiss too as is we talk, we're talking about China and um, we're kind of lumping the people together as one homogenous unit. And, and I think most of what we're talking about here is relating to um, the Han Chinese population of China, which is, I don't, do you have the statistics of what percentage the Han make up of the total population of China? It's like something like 93%. Uh, is, is that close? Yeah, it's, it's definitely over 90%. And so we're seeing this huge movement happening within the Han group, but there's also important to remember that there's other huge parts of, of China. And we, these small percentage-wise people groups are still larger than many countries in Europe or South America. Um, you know, people groups like the Uyghurs, of which um, less, far less than 1% are believers, or the Hui, um, or the Tibetans, or the Mongolians. Um, there's more Mongolians living in China than there are Mongolians living in Mongolia. Uh, and then a lot of other 
um, people groups living in the south, uh, southern parts of China, the southwest, southeast, um, in, in which there still needs to be mission movements, um, whether that's foreign uh, missionaries going to them or the Chinese church, the Han Chinese church, um, seeing that as their as their Samaria and and going to the go- with the gospel. Are you seeing any any traction with that of Han believers having a burden for the minority peoples in China? There's over 20 million uh, Muslims in China. Oh yeah. It's mm-hmm. huge. Yeah. There's an increase of going to those minority uh, people groups. I think it's I think in their missions movement that still could increase significantly over time. Uh, a friend of mine Mike Falkenstein with one uh, eight catalyst out of Denver told me recently that there's over 300 languages in China that still need the Bible translated into their language. And so there's, as you were saying, everything we've talked about, most of it pretty much has to do with the Han church. Uh, but there's still a, a large segment of population. When I say large, large in numbers, definitely, maybe not percentage wise, but a large group of people that still, need people to go and engage them and serve them, love them, share the gospel, make disciples, um, you know, both from an outside standpoint like us, but also from within the body of Christ among the Han church. Um, there is a need to increase that presence among those people groups. Well, that, that is, um, important. And, uh, two, two questions as we sort of wind things down, one is, what do you think are the best uh, specific ways that our listeners can be praying for the church that's in China? And then second, how can people uh, hear more from you and your ministry and get more of Steve uh, if they want to follow you and, and uh, the things that you're involved in? Uh, as far as prayer is concerned, um, I, I would say that praying for the church in China to persevere under these uh, new circumstances they find themselves under with the new law uh, the new things that are happening, uh, the ability to um, contextualize their work, but also pray for their missions movement. Uh, there's so much that is happening in there. There's so much that needs to happen still to make it to make it stronger. But just pray for them because I, I think this is a, a strong missionary force that that I do believe God is building uh, to send out in the future. Uh, as far as connecting with us, I would love to connect with anybody. There's there's a couple of ways. One is our website, silkroadcatalyst.com. Um, and I have a website also, stevesilkroad.com. Um, and of course, on Twitter, my Twitter, my Twitter handle is Steve Silk Road. Um, and then, you know, they're, they're free to email me directly if they'd like. And it's just Steve S at silkroadcatalyst.com. And I would love to answer any more questions that people have or um, point them in the right direction of places that where they can serve, whether it's with us or someone else. Well, that's awesome. And you do a really great job on the web and social media uh, of raising awareness, not only of what God is doing in Asia, but the need for more workers around the world. So thanks for joining us today, Steve. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'd just like to encourage, too, if you're if you're listening to this and you're saying, hey, I want to get involved in in um, in, the, in ministry in in China. Um, yes, it is true. Missionaries are not allowed in China, but we would love to be able to talk to you about 
about opportunities and ways that people can still serve. And so um, feel free to reach out to us and we'd love to be able to help guide you through some of that, some of that, um, that discussion. And don't forget to share this episode with somebody that's like-minded that uh, maybe God's putting somebody in your mind uh, or heart who has the gifts or skills, maybe to teach English or maybe do something else with the, the majority people or even with some of the Muslim minorities. Uh, it's all important stuff. So thanks for mentioning that, Scott. Uh, Steve, thanks for your time today. It was really good. And, and uh, maybe we'll do a part two on cults and theology or something like that. Thank you. <laughs> If you want to get more great content on theology, missions, and practice, go to missionspodcast.com. And while you're there, make sure that you subscribe in iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite listening platform. And please make sure that you also give us an honest review and a five-star rating. And please don't forget to be sending your questions to alex at missionspodcast.com, along with any other ideas for future episodes. And until next time, thank you for joining us.